It's good to be with you this morning. I've uh, been out of town the past couple of weeks, so this week I had to get the, the podcast for last week's sermon. And the funniest thing, like honestly, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I, it. I pulled up the welcome screen, and it's got a little information on your iPod about the podcast. It said, this is the 75th sermon in the Messiah series, and I just laughed out loud. I was like, 75 sermons, and we're going to finish chapter 25 this morning. So it means we have three more chapters, so FUD's got at least another 70 or so sermons to get you through those, so we'll be good to go. Um, it's, it's, I enjoy being an elder at Remedy. It's, it's a lot of fun, and part of uh, my responsibilities as an elder is to help um, share some of the burden of teaching, and FUD hadn't had a vacation in a couple years, so um, I told him he had to, and that I would preach for him, so uh, he took a little time off this week supposedly. I'll have to check in with him and make sure he actually did that. But uh, glad to be here with you this morning. We are finishing Matthew 25. So if you have not um, turned there yet, you can go ahead. Matthew 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, keep that. That is our gift to you. Um, If you have a Bible at home and you're just forgetful, leave it and don't be a thief. So, uh, Okay, you can laugh. It's okay. Calm down. We're all friends here. Just joke. Um, But yeah, so if you need a Bible, you don't have one, take that. That's our gift to you. Take it, read it, be blessed. We are in Matthew 25. um, And so what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to pray. And then we'll get started this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for another morning. Thank you for life. And most importantly, thank you for the life of Jesus that you are not in the tomb, that you have risen victorious over life and death. You are our King and our Lord and our Master, and we love you. And we come here this morning because of what you've done for us, and we pray that you would settle our hearts steadfast on you, that we would hear your truth, and that we would be changed because we've heard it, And then we would live differently because we're pursuing Jesus in all things. Lord, we love you and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 24, 25, if you haven't been with us or even if you have been with us, Matthew 24, 25, the disciples ask Jesus what's going to happen at the end of the age, the end of the world, something everybody wants to know about. So Jesus doesn't keep it a secret. He begins telling them what's going on, talking about the destruction of the temple and then other things that are going to happen at the end of the world. And Jesus begins with a very clear, straightforward teaching, telling them about the destruction of the temple, that he talks about what's going to happen to those who follow him, the persecution that will happen. And then Jesus goes into parables. And a parable, as we've talked about, is a short story that's told to drive home a single point, okay? We don't want to take parables and and worry about all these different parallels and figure out who's this and who's this and who's this and then try to draw multiple conclusions from it. Jesus tells parables to get a point across. And we find these parables and this Olivet Discourse, he's on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's the Olivet Discourse, these parables, he says, this is what's going to happen. The parables show us how then we should respond and how we should live. And here at the very end of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus comes back to more plain, straightforward teaching. What we see this morning is is not going to be a parable. So if you've been with us the past couple weeks and we've gone through these parables, what we see this morning is Jesus goes back to straightforward, plain teaching. 
Now, there is some language, some kind of uh, figurative language that's used within the teaching when Jesus talks about people being separated as sheep or separated from goats. Don't let that make you think, okay, this is a story about a shepherd. No, let follow in with the plain teaching of the text. So with that being said, let's read Matthew 25. We'll be in verses 31 through 46. And as we, as we, after we get through that, we'll, we'll dive right in. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this is a, uh, this is a weighty text. Anytime we begin talking about judgment, it just gets real. Um, and we get nervous. Um, but this morning, what I want to know, and the question that I want to ask, and I want us to seek to answer this morning is what should our response be to what Jesus teaches us? Because this entire discourse isn't just a a lecture. Jesus is teaching, and Jesus' teaching is for a reason. He, He wants to bring out a response in us. So as he's teaching, he doesn't just say, I want to transfer information to you. I want you to hear what's being said, and there's a response that should come out of what you hear. So what I want to know is, as we're looking at this text, what should our response be? And though there could be several things, I think there's two that I'd like to point out to you this morning. The first one is this. This teaching should turn our eyes upon Jesus. Now, this is the second time Jesus mentions his return. If you were to look over at Matthew 24, 30, Jesus is talking, and he says immediately, or 29, immediately after the tribulation... 
The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give us light. Stars will fall from heaven. Powers of heaven will be shaken. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from all the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so Jesus says this, Matthew 24, 29 and 30, 31. And then he launches into where the parables come in. And so Jesus says, I'm going to return. He launches into the parables that teach us what we should do. And now he's come back to this idea that he's going to return. But what we are, will do if we're not careful is just glance over this and say, well, what about these people? What about these people? And what we've got to do is we've got to say, all right, we're going to talk about the people. But Jesus puts a lot of emphasis on him at the very beginning. And so that's where we have to start. So there's four things I'd like for us to notice about Jesus as we're looking at this passage. First thing is this. Jesus will return. Okay? Now, let me just say at the outset, these four things, when I tell them to you, they will probably say, okay, those are no-brainers. Those are obvious. I get that. I see that. I know that this is true. But the danger in knowing something's true and the danger in not understanding the obvious is that we can miss the implications that are there. So what I want us to do is take some things that might be obvious and see what are the implications for us? What does this mean? Why would Jesus spend time focusing on this? And so the first thing is that Jesus will return. Now we've got to keep this in context because that helps us understand some of the importance of it. We've already seen Jesus has talked about this. We know he's coming back to this idea that he will return. Meaning that he's he's telling his disciples now twice now, I'm going to return. They understand that means he's going to go away. And when he goes away is what happens is when what happens in Matthew 24 becomes real. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so Jesus has told them, when I leave, it's going to get rough. It's going to be bad. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be dragged in front of courts. People are going to hate you. They're going to put you to death. Those who say they're following us, some of their love will grow cold. It is going to be an extremely difficult time. Now, if Jesus just left his followers and said, hey, when I leave, it's going to get rough, y'all. And then didn't tell them he was coming back. He would leave them without hope. But what Jesus says is, I'm going away and it's going to get rough. But hear me, I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave it like this. It's not going to stay like this forever. It will be difficult. It will be hard. It will not be a walk in the park. You will have a very difficult time. But hear me, I'm coming back. And when Jesus says that, it helps them and it helps us to know that in the midst of extreme difficulties, when we are feeling the effects of a sinful world on us, when we are feeling the effects of people who hate Jesus coming against us, when we are feeling the effects of living in a broken world, we know he's coming back. He hasn't left us for good. He will return. 
And when we know that Jesus will return, it inspires in us a sense of hope, a sense of longing, a sense of anticipation. But you know what it also does? If you were here last week, one of the things that Fudd said that we learned from the parable of the talents is that the master is coming back to settle accounts. And what that means is we know he's coming back. And so those times where we may be prone to laziness or those times where we may be prone to look to other things for our joy and our satisfaction and those times where we may be prone to not put our eyes on Jesus and prone to look at the world or prone to look at other things, when we remember he's coming back, he's coming back, and if I'm his servant, I'm going to stand before him. It pushes us and it reminds us he's got something for me to do. He set out a path before me. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has done this. When he has saved you, Christian, when he has bought you with his own very blood, he has not said, I have saved you. Now you sit on the shelf and wait till I get back. He says, I have saved you. You cannot earn my love, but you must now go and walk a life of good works that I prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And so those times when it gets difficult and our eyes are off the prize, Jesus' return calls us back and encourages us to walk steadfast in the way that he set before us. Jesus will return. Second thing is this. Jesus is king of the earth. Now, again, it's kind of one of those things, yeah, I know that, I get that, but I remember... For me, one time when this really was driven home to me, um, the second time I went to Ethiopia, I remember we were, we were doing a, a medical clinic, and before we did it, we did some uh, street preaching. So I'm standing, I say street preaching, um, path preaching, maybe better, field preaching. We were in this giant field, and these hundred people are in front of us. It's right in front of a valley. There's mountains. It's just beautiful place. And I got to stand up and talk about how God created all things and he loved these people and wanted them to come into a relationship with Jesus. And it struck me that oftentimes I kind of get this idea that Jesus is my king of the people I know in the area that I'm at, that as soon as I stepped off the plane in Africa, I was in a different country, a different government, a different culture, a different language, a different way of dressing, everything. But it didn't matter. As soon as I stepped down, Jesus was still king there the way that he's king like where I live, the way he's king over every part of the part of the earth. You see, and we forget that sometimes. We kind of get wrapped up into our own little situation, who we are. He's king of it all. So that means everyone is his. And everyone needs to know about the fact that he is their king. And when you put these two together, when you get to the third point, it gets very real. Because the third thing we need to know about Jesus is Jesus will be the judge. Now, let's just be honest. When we start talking about judgment, it makes us very uncomfortable. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you have trusted him for your salvation, and you, you know that Romans 8, 1, there's no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing. We are safe. We are secure in Christ. When you start talking about judgment, it, it just it bothers us a little bit. Because in our culture, especially when we think about judgment, we go to those, those people who claim to be Christians, but all they like to do is beat down on other people and talk about how horrible they are and how good they are. And like, I don't want to be like that. Or you start talking about, you know, if you ever confront anybody with sin, people who don't know any other verse in the Bible, they know, hey, judge not, 
Judge not lest you be judged. You know, all of a sudden they're a Bible scholar and they're going to throw that one out at you. You know, and so we're, we're so worried. We, we hear this word judgment. We don't know what's going on. Here's the fact of the matter. Jesus is king over all the earth. And he's not just a king. He's not been elected king. He's not been made king. Jesus is the king by the very fact that he created it all. Spoke into existence. It is his. He sustains it by the power of his word, according to Hebrews chapter 1. And he's not just the king. He is a good king. And he is righteous. And he is good in all that he does, in all that he says, in all that he thinks. In every interaction, it is holy and wonderful and amazing. And so when we start talking about Jesus being the judge, we have to remember, if he's a good king, he will be a judge. Because he cannot let righteousness be ignored. Just as if a judge sat on a bench here in America and it was obvious that a person had killed someone else and they just let them go, there would be an outcry. There would be riots. Because that judge was not good. He did not do what was right. And so Jesus must do what is right. But when we think about Jesus as judge, we also remember what God said in Exodus 30, I mean, Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, For thus says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn, that you would turn and come back to me, says the Holy One. You see, Jesus executes judgment. He's not afraid to do it. He's not like, oh, I don't want to do this. But what we've got to understand is when we talk about Christ as a judge, he's not up there with a sword in his hand, just like, oh, man, I can't wait to get to him. Like, I am so excited just to beat these people down. That's not what Jesus is doing as he comes to judgment. He's not coming saying, man, I'm just so looking forward to this. For 2,000 years, I'm just ready. This is going to be fun. Jesus has come and he says, they're rebellious people and I'm righteous and I'm good and I will punish that which needs to be punished. But then also I think we need to look at the fourth part. Jesus will return. Jesus is the king of all the earth. He will judge. But notice something that we may just wash over. Jesus identifies with those who suffer. Jesus identifies with those who suffer. Now this almost seems, if we're looking at it from a human standpoint, it does seem that it's out of context with the other ones. Because you've got this glorious, reigning, returning king who's going to judge everybody. But then notice what he says. In the midst of this, this conversation with the righteous and the unrighteous, these things that he does, he says, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. Jesus doesn't just say, as much as you did it to those people, as much as you did it to these people that I let exist, as much as you did it to those people who were over there, Jesus says, these are my brothers. Far from alienating them, far from simply tolerating them, Jesus, the almighty king of the universe, comes down to those who are suffering and enduring much and wraps his arms around them and says, these are my brothers. That is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. There's not very many of us who, who are ready on a moment's notice to go to someone who's badly clothed and hasn't had a shower in months and, 
is just begging for stuff. We don't usually go down and wrap our arms around them and just love them. But that is what Jesus has done for us. And he doesn't just say, I'm an aloof judge sitting on my throne looking down on all of you. Jesus comes down and he identifies with the very ones who have nothing to give at all. Demonstrating his glorious grace in all that he is. Jesus is a marvelous, marvelous king. Let us not forget that. Let it push us and drive us forward. Let it fuel our worship. We have to turn our eyes on Jesus. Well, the second thing that this text does, and which comes probably most natural to us, is that this teaching should turn our eyes towards eternity. So now what we do is we want to turn our attention to the two groups, and what we find is that the interaction of Jesus with these two groups is very similar. So it says that the angels have gone out and they've gathered everyone on earth. They've all come together. They're standing before Jesus. And Jesus and it says, just like a shepherd will take in and separate the sheep from the goats, Jesus now separates on his right the righteous, on his left the unrighteous. And so he does this. He separates them. But where we find that the interaction is similar and what Jesus says to them, it's the differences that are important to us. Because though the interaction is similar, they're also different. So let's look first at the righteous when he speaks to the sheep or the righteous. First thing that we see is that Jesus speaks to the righteous and notice what he says in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice what Jesus does. The invitation is to come. To come into his presence, to come to him. Not go to the kingdom. Not yours is over there. The call of Jesus to the righteous is to himself. For truly, the joy of eternity, of being in the kingdom of God, is not streets of gold or nice mansions or having to not worry about getting a cold. The joy of the kingdom is being in the presence of the king. And so those who have trusted him and longed for him and served him, he calls into his presence. The righteous, he says, come to me. Come into the kingdom. But that's the second point, is where are they going? They're, they're going into the kingdom. Now, as, we've, as we read this, we look, and there, there could be the tendency that we could look at it and say, they've come into this kingdom because they've done certain things. Therefore, the entrance into the kingdom is by being a good person or by serving. I don't think that's the case for two reasons. One, we can't take this out of context. If, you, if this was the only part of Scripture we had, then maybe we might could say that, but I still don't think that's the case. Knowing what the Bible teaches us all over is that we can't earn God's love. We can't earn interest into God's kingdom on our own. We need Christ to do that for us. We look at this, and I think there's a couple of things that help us to see that what Jesus is teaching here is not, this is how you get into heaven, but this is evidence of the thing that gets you into heaven. Two things. One, notice that he says that they are to inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. The kingdom that was prepared for his people from the foundation of the world. Meaning, this was there ready for them before they did anything good or bad. 
It was already there. It was set up, ready to go before they even did one thing. So they didn't earn it. But notice also as well the type of things that Jesus says. Jesus says, you, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, welcomed me naked and you clothed me sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous look at him and say, Jesus, when did we do that? I don't, I don't understand. I don't, remember, I don't remember seeing you. I don't, like, I don't remember doing anything. And their very response, had they been doing these things, let me, let me do good stuff. Let me try to earn heaven. Let me be a good person so that God would love me. If that had been the case, that when Jesus said all these things, they'd have said, yep, I remember that. Yep, I remember it. You know, I did. I served three times a week. I volunteered at the hospital with sick people. And I worked at the food bank, and I made sure I took two-thirds of my check, and I gave it away. Jesus, you're right. I remember that. I remember doing all of that, and you saw it. You saw it, Jesus. Good. I'm glad you recognized what I did, because I was doing that. I was, I, see, see what I did? I did that so you would, you would love me, and then we'd get to this point, and I'd be able to stand over here, and like, all right, I'm ready to go. That's not what they said, because what they said was, when did we do that? I, I, don't even, I don't even know when I would do that. William Henderson writes, and I think this is good, helps us to understand. The good pleasure of the God triune, his sovereign grace, is the foundation of their salvation. Their good works are the fruit, not the root of grace. You see, these very things that these people were doing, their response, Jesus talking about it, shows that what this is, this flows out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Trust and faith in Jesus makes us this kind of people. And it's amazing how James writes the very thing in James chapter 2. Listen to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 70, and hear the common language. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is what James says. It's what Jesus is saying. A heart that has been changed by the gospel presents itself by being a person who reflects Jesus. The reason why this reflects Jesus, as I've already alluded to, is because this is what Jesus did for us. We had nothing. We had nothing to offer. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. We were hungry. We were thirsty. We were naked. We were in the prison, locked away in our sin. We needed a redeemer. We were alienated from God. We needed somebody to do this for us, and Christ did it. And as we understand what Jesus did on the cross for us, as we understand the gospel, we are so changed that our lives begin to reflect Jesus. And it just becomes who we are. And so I think the reason why the people here look at Jesus and say, when did we do that? It's just because that was the way life is. When we understand Jesus, we become compassionate people. We love others. We serve others. We care for others. As a reflection of the gospel, it just becomes second nature to us. It's who we are. And what happened here is Jesus points out that the fruit of their lives reveal they have trusted in him. 
And now he says, come. Come to me, the one whom you love, the one whom you've trusted, the one whom you live for, as evidence by your life. So the righteous, the sheep, are invited to come to him. But it's not the only group that's there. There is the unrighteous, or the goats, as Jesus calls them. Same kind of conversation goes on, but there are some stark differences. Look at verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are hard words, because now Jesus looks at a group of people over here, and he does not say, Come. Come into my presence, enjoy me, be fulfilled by me, find the satisfaction that you were made for. He doesn't say that. He says, depart from me. Go out of my presence. Go away from that which can satisfy you. Go away. And he says, go into an eternal punishment. Not temporary, not just right now. And that is a hard thing. That is a weighty thing. And yet Jesus becomes very clear here so that we would see and understand the realities that we have to deal with. Is that those who don't trust Him are not just put aside, but sent away into eternal punishment. And we know, again, that what happens here is not just, okay, you didn't do the right things. Henderson writes, and I think it's good. It should be noted that all these sins are negative. Not a single sinful deed, such as idolatry, murder, adultery, theft, etc., is mentioned. Only sins of omission are enumerated. This neglect proves that these people have not believed in the Son of Man. And for this unbelief thus demonstrated, they are condemned. The people here, Jesus doesn't say, well, you just didn't do enough stuff. That's why you have to depart. Just like those who have been brought into the kingdom because they have trusted Christ and their life has evidence that they've trusted Christ, here Jesus reveals that they have not trusted Christ and their life gives all the evidence needed. Why? They did not live the gospel in their life. Now, I want to be very careful here, and I think there's also a danger We live in a society where it is praised and looked upon very highly if we are kind and generous people. Take evidence by the fact that any time in the past, you know, 20 years or so, or probably 10 years or so, if there's been a major national disaster or something that's happened, what's happened? 10, 12, 14 celebrities get together, they do a -a phone-a-thon, and we raise billions of dollars. And that's a good thing. That's good. And as Christians, I think evidence from this text, we should be leading the charge in things like that, caring for those who are in need. But there's a very big difference that we must be very careful of. It's easy to do good things for people because it feels good or we just feel like, well, it's just the right thing to do. As opposed to, Christ has given all for me. Now, I want to care for and be the kind of person that reflects what Jesus has done for me. 
It may seem minuscule, but it is massive in its implications. Because one has Christ at the center, and one has me at the center. And if we are not careful, we can fool ourselves into believing that we're following Christ when we just do things for others because it makes us feel good. And we could read this text and say, well, I do stuff, therefore I'm okay. If we are not doing things from the heart of the gospel, it'll all be for nothing. So we must be very careful. Our motivation, our motivation is that we have a glorious king who has given all for us. And far from seeing what he has done and being scared of doing good things, we do good things. We walk forward. We search the scriptures. What are the commands? What do I do to follow Jesus? Because I want to follow him. I want to be the person that reflects the gospel. I want to be somebody who loves Jesus and shows it with his life because he is awesome. I want to live. Show me what to do because I know I can't earn anything. He's earned it all for me. I'm free now to serve and give my life completely to him because I don't have to worry about earning anything. How can I do this? That's the kind of person we are. And that's the kind of gospel-centered response that we need. Remember what Fudd told us last week. We serve because he's our master and he's entrusted us with much. He will come to settle accounts. We love him because he loves us and the joy of God awaits us. We serve because faithfulness matters and Jesus took our punishment and we now know him as we are known. And we work hard because in the gospel, God has given us amazing value. So now, as we stand looking at this big reality of what Jesus has taught, what do we do? Well, there's, there's three things that I'd like to end with, kind of some points of application. Three things. First is this. Allow Jesus' teaching to push you towards greater endurance. We will all have times of difficulties in following Jesus. Now, those difficulties may come in the form of persecution or people um, making it hard for us to follow Jesus. And when it's those, we need need the, the faithfulness of Jesus to return, his promises, our trust, and knowing that what he will do is that he will take care of us, he will come back, he will set things right, all will be made good. We know that, and so it pushes us to endure to go through hardship and to not let those who want to bring us down deter us from following Jesus. We need that. And so we must look to Jesus' teaching and we must let it encourage our hearts and lift us up and push us when things are difficult. But at the same time, it also pushes us to endure when we would be bent towards laziness, when we want to give up, when we want to walk away, when we would rather pursue a 401k than we would pursuing holiness, when we would rather have a bigger house than to really follow Jesus, when we would have all these things that would, that would take our vision and our eyes want to be set on that, we, when we look at all that, what Jesus' teaching does is he helps pull our eyes back to him and says, I'm coming back. This is not a game. It's not secondary. It is primary, and it pushes us to endure, but really not just endure, to thrive and to push hard towards Jesus. 
Because if there's really no end in sight, if Jesus isn't coming back and things are just going to go the way they're going to go for however long until the sun explodes or whatever, then what point is there pursuing all those things? Live for right now. But if he's coming back, then it helps put everything into perspective. So let us endure and thrive in pushing after Jesus. Second is this. We must seek to develop a lifestyle of service. Now, here's, here's something that can happen. And I've, I've had to counsel people with this before. When you have, um, we have sermons that are like this. And they talk about working out of the right heart. We need to work, but you need to make sure you have the right heart. For some people, what can happen is, um, okay, all right, so, so I want to serve Jesus I'm really interested, I want to do it, but I'm really afraid that I'm going to do it for the wrong motives. You know, like, what if me? What if I'm the center of it? And I'm really, really what I'm doing is like, like, it's really about me. And so I want to be real careful, but then I want to serve, but I'm afraid that if I serve, I'm actually going to do it at the wrong motives, and I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to get this right? Oh my goodness, Jesus hates me. I don't know what's going on. If that's you right now, tell you like I told this first service, I give you permission to take a chill pill, okay? If you want to serve Jesus and you're afraid that you've got the wrong motives, you're okay, okay? If you genuinely love Jesus, then just serve him. If you genuinely love Jesus, you're not going to do it out of the wrong motives. You're okay. And sometimes we get so caught up and we're so worried that we might do it for the wrong motives that we become paralyzed and don't do anything. Jesus prepared good works for us to walk in. Love Jesus, get busy. That's really what it is. And if you genuinely love Jesus, you're not going to do things out of wrong motives because you love Jesus. And it's very easy for us to get paralyzed with that because we want to do things right, and that's commendable. Yes, we want to not be workspace. We want to not think that we can earn anything. But let me tell you something. If you love Jesus, he's got stuff for you to do. So love him and get busy. Let us develop a lifestyle of service. Let us care for the poor. Let us reach out to those who are in need. Let us do these things because we love Jesus. And if from time to time you see your eyes off of Jesus, put your eyes back on Jesus and keep serving. So where do we do this? Where do we develop this lifestyle of service? Where do we develop this? Uh, Well, I really think there's two places that we need to consider. First is within the church and second is outside of the church. And I make the distinction because I feel like in this passage, Jesus makes a slight distinction. Because you'll notice that what he says is, if you've done this to one of the least of these, my brothers. Now, as being part of the family of God, Jesus recognizes that we are a family. And we are to take care of one another. It's not enough to just come on Sunday and sit and then walk away and have no connection whatsoever. We don't, we don't want estranged family members. We want a tight-knit group. And as part of being together as a family, we must take care of each other. We must love each other, and we must be ready to serve one another. That's important. And we can't miss that. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. 
for one another. He's speaking to the disciples. The love that you have for one another. Our love for the family of God will demonstrate to the lost and dying world that we're followers of Jesus. If it's that important, then I think that we need to let that be pretty high on our list. So as such, we're, we're ready, we're looking, we're waiting. If someone within our fellowship has a need or is in this situation where they have something, we as a body want to come around them and individually and as a group serve them and care for them. But you know, even outside of an individual basis, as a, as a corporate basis, there's opportunities for us to love and to serve other people. Now, I've been part of churches before that when you start talking about, here's an opportunity to serve, here's something that you can do, and literally they could pull out a list of about 30 or 40 different ministries. They're like, you can be on the bus ministry, you can be on the flower ministry, you can be on the vacuum the carpet twice a week ministry. I mean, you know, whatever. They got all these different ministries. Here's all these different ways that you can serve. Well, at Remedy, we're a little bit different, okay? And I don't think that's bad, neither good nor bad. I'm not making a judgment one way or the other. But we're a little bit different. We don't have... 600 ministries that you can choose one to get in and serve. But as I was thinking about this, I was like, I want to have an example. I want something very specific. So I thought of something that's, that's pretty, pretty near and dear to me. I got four kids. Um, Fudd's got like 24 kids, you know, or, or five, you know, something like that. Um, and so, you know, kids are, kids are kind of important to us. And one of the cool things that's happened over really the past couple months is God has been gracious to us, and there have been families who've been coming and visiting our church more than once um, that have kids. And one of the things that we as a church want to do is we want to care for families. And you'll notice during the service we have for everybody kindergarten and younger, we have a place where they can go uh, with a curriculum where they learn about Jesus and people who love them and are pointing them towards Jesus and care for them. And you know what? For some of those moms, that's really maybe the only break they get during the week. Especially if it's a stay-at-home mom, they're there with their kids. They love their kids, but they need just, you know, an hour that they can sit and think about Jesus and worship. And what we do as a church is we kind of say, you know what, can we serve you in that? Can we help you? Can we come alongside you and provide for you a time, a place where you know that your, your, child, your children will be taken care of, they'll be loved, they're right here. If, they're, if something happens, we'll come get you. We're right here, and we can do that for you, and we can help take care of you. One of the things we've found is that as we've increased the number of, of children that we get to love and have the privilege to serve, our number of people who've been able to serve or, or who have been serving has actually gone down. And some, some amazing people have stepped in and served three and four times this summer and done some different things. So maybe this morning, if you're looking and say, okay, how can I serve somebody? How can I serve within the body? That's a concrete example of how you can go down Sing a few songs, laugh, smile, say, hey, Jesus loves you. And care for somebody. Somebody who, who needs to know about the love of Christ. Somebody who needs to know that there, there are other adults in the world who love me and care for me and want to help take care of me. So maybe you could do that. Maybe that would be the way that you could serve. And if you're interested in that, I'll be around. You let me know. I'll show you how you can get plugged in to that. Um, but then also, we have to be ready to serve outside the church. And that's where one of those opportunities comes where we can serve those who are less fortunate, those who have needs, that serve those around us. And the thing is, we can get, again, kind of overwhelmed by this. I know um, I just returned from Ethiopia. I was there for two weeks. And it's easy to see extreme poverty and just be overwhelmed. 
and, and not know where to start and not know what to do. But there's also the sense that some people could take from this sermon kind of the sense of guilt so that they need to, they need to feel like, okay, so I guess what I got to do is as soon as I leave here, I need to go to the bank and just clean up my bank account and go looking for poor people and just start throwing away money because that's what Jesus wants me to do. It's not what I'm saying. But we will all have opportunity to help others. And what I want to ask and what I want to say is do we have the mindset that helping and caring for others is important to us? Or does the new jet ski or the latest technological gadget or does the new whatever have preeminence in your life? So that when you see somebody that you know has a genuine need and you know that you could help them and serve them, do you say, well, I would, but I really need to get that iPad. So I'm not going to do anything to help them right now. Calvin writes, and this is, this is good, this, this helped me this week. So then, when we have reluctance to assist the poor, let us place before our eyes the Son of God, to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. I don't think any of us in this room have the means to help every single person who has need. And at the same time, I don't think Jesus expects us to meet the need, expects me to meet the need of every single person in the world. But what we must do as a people is develop a mindset that says, this is what Christ has done for me. And this is how I can help model and display the gospel to the world. And so, let us examine our hearts. How are we doing that within the church? How are we doing that outside of the church? And the very last thing is this. We must examine our lives. It struck me this week as I was thinking about the people who were on the left that they could have done some good stuff. I mean, they could have given away money. They could have, you know, been nice people. They could have been in a religious culture that said, this is what you do, and so that's what they did. And they could have missed it completely because they were wrapped up in what they did. And it struck me that there were surely some on that day who thought they'd been put into the wrong camp. And there may be people in this room who are not trusting in Jesus, but still think they're going to be over on the right. And can I say with the utmost concern and brokenness in my heart, on that day, it will be too late to say all the things that I heard in church, okay, I believe it now. It'll be too late. There will not be a second chance on that day. When Jesus makes the division, it is set But if it is too late that day, hear me, it is not too late now. Christ has not returned yet. And if he has not returned, there is an opportunity now for anybody under the sound of my voice that if you've heard that Christ has died for you, 
that you are separated from God by your sinfulness and there's nothing you can do to return to him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right. You can't feed enough people. You can't clothe enough people. You can't visit enough people. That won't save you. But trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross and that alone will bring you near to God. If you hear that this morning and you've never trusted it, you too can be brought near to Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We're going to share together in the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. But I want to ask you, are you in the faith? Are you genuinely trusting Jesus? And if not, why not? So this morning, if if you came with somebody, if somebody invited you and asked you to come to church and you know that they're a follower of Jesus and you know in your heart that you need to trust Jesus, my first preference is that you would go to that person because they obviously love you and care about you and say, this may be awkward, this may be weird, you may not know this about me, you might, I need to trust Jesus and grant them the privilege of telling you the truth of who Christ is and how you can have a deep relationship with him. Or maybe you don't have somebody, or maybe that's just too weird for you. Maybe you want to talk to somebody else. So I ask you, I'll be sitting right down here in the front after Lord's Supper in some of these songs. I ask you that if you, you need to talk to somebody, come down one of those songs. Come talk to me. Come find fun at the back. We'd love to talk to you and share with you truth about Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, We love you. We stand in awe of you. You are a great and glorious king. And when we think about things like judgment, it is not with joy that we think about eternal punishment. Oh, the joy of being with you forever. How we long to be into heaven. But Lord, we do not think with joy, but with utter sadness that there will be people who do not know you and will be cast out of your presence because they have not trusted Christ. Lord, I pray that what you've taught us would push us, push us to endure, push us to love you, push us to follow hard after you. And Lord, may it push us to share the truth of the gospel. Father, would you now take this word and sink it deep into our hearts? and move us to follow you. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.